Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Here we go then, a general election, everyone. Are you excited? I am. Jenny Russell, Times columnist, isn't. We'll be talking about that shortly. We're joined by Anthony Wells, Director of Political Polling at YouGov, who will explain what we should be looking out for in the polling that comes out in the next few weeks. Plus, Hamish MacDonald, the new Scottish political editor of The Times, to give us an idea of what's happening north of the border. Jenny, I'm very excited about the election, but you're not. For the first time in my life, Matt, I have to say, I think you're lying to me. <laughs> but, I, but I hope I'm but wrong. I'll tell you what it is, I'll tell you because I've had a holiday. I've come back from a holiday, enthused by it all. There's people who haven't had a holiday for months and months and months are still, still tired from the Brexit referendum. Well, the one bit of your sentence that's true is that I am, for the first time in my entire life, having grown up in a family that was addicted to politics and having covered politics for 25 years and always been basically thrilled by an election campaign, I found myself thinking... Good God, the next seven weeks. Because the frustrating thing is this is an incredibly important issue, but the issues that it raises are not going to be addressed in this campaign and we can already see the parameters of the result. Hard to get really very interested. Is it just because elections where we know what the result is going to be, or we think we know what the result is going to be, are just less exciting than one that looks like a close race? I think it's partly that, but I, th- I, th- I think it's also about the disjunction between the fact that most people I know feel either very excited and happy about the prospects of Brexit or very alarmed about it. So it's the disjunction between the enormity of the question, are we going to leave Europe? How should we leave Europe? What are going to be the consequences of that? And what is going to be discussed in this election? Because nobody who wants to stay in Europe can vote for a party that is going to end up allowing them to stay. And nor are all the issues about what does Brexit mean for us going to be settled in this election, because we know that May will probably stonewall her way very effectively through the election campaign. And it won't matter because nobody is going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister in numbers enough to make a difference. So she's going to end up with a bigger majority. And we know all that before we start. Anthony, you excited? Yes, but I've just had a holiday. <laughs> Maybe the We should all a, have holidays, a, obviously, a, before surprise <laughs> announcements. There's a Venn diagram here with people who've been on holiday and people who are excited about the election. So I can look at huge tables of battleground seats and go through lots of polling data and pull apart the entrails and so on. So, yeah, I'm thrilled. You're, you've only, what, what a time to join the Times of Scotland as, <laughs> as political. So they thought, easing your way in, you've got years yet before a general election comes around. Well, that's right. I mean, I, it, because we have other elections in Scotland, as well we have 
the, the Scottish Parliament elections, it seems like we've been in a never-ending escalator of, of, of elections, just one after the other. Then you throw in referendums as well. It, it, it just we haven't had any period of stability. So in terms of excitement, I think things things are different in Scotland because the the, the context of this election is, is is very different. But because, as Jenny said, the the overall result is is seems to be almost without doubt. It, it still makes the voting that anybody does, if, if it's in Scotland or in the rest of the UK, feel feel slightly less important. And, and just on the sort of the way that we expect the campaign to play out, is part of the reason you're not excited, Jenny, because Theresa May is not very exciting? Because there was excitement around the new Labour result in 1997 because Tony Blair was a bit more showbiz and a bit, you know, there was a big change coming. But we know there's no big change coming and Theresa May is not, of all of her many qualities, showbiz. Yes, but again, that's not quite it because actually what is going to happen to us in the next few years I think is far too exciting in terms of leaving Europe <laughs> and to what it's going to mean in terms of um, trade and jobs and going to Europe and people being able to live abroad and, and all the other consequences of Brexit. I, I think we're, we're living in far too interesting a time, but we're not going to get an, much of an understanding of that over the next few weeks. And I guess my other frustration is that... I just wish that we had an opposition leader who was a great deal more exciting. I mean, that, that's the, that's the great gaping hole in this in this whole business that we have an opposition where very few people could take Jeremy Corbyn seriously. And I speak as somebody who, for most of my life, has been a Labour voter, but I can't bear the fact that that man is supposed to be holding the government to account. He hasn't been able to do it over the past 18 months and he certainly won't be able to do it over this election campaign and more and more people will wake up to that. The Labour's got a completely hopeless leader and lose all faith in Labour and yet there's no alternative there with the Lib Dems because keen as they may be to capitalise on some of the Remain voters... They just haven't got any strength in the areas where it matters. They might end up with perhaps doubling their seats, but it's not going to make any difference to the outcome. Uh, how big a problem do you think it is at a time when the country is facing such a massive challenge that the political class, or whatever you call them, the political establishment, don't seem collectively to be rising to it? That actually Theresa May can get away with not telling us very much about what she's going to do with Brexit because there's nobody decent asking her to tell us anymore. Yeah, it's because she's not in jeopardy. Normally Prime Ministers and Cabinet Ministers feel that they have to come up with answers to questions otherwise it might be uncomfortable for them politically. But there is no danger because there's just a, a, a an empty space where the opposition ought to be. So we're all suffering because there isn't a decent opposition. And the press try. They try to ask questions but they just get stonewalled back. I mean, I have to say, I think our only hope is that if there's going to be a question time format in which Theresa May is challenged by individual members of the public, that's actually our best hope for getting an answer out of something. Because one of the political conventions is that you can't quite be as rude or as blank or as uninterested <laughs> when you're talking to an actual person as you can be to a representative of the press. You can just treat as a damn nuisance. And rather like the questioning of the, Mrs Thatcher over the sinking of the Belgrano way back in the Falkland campaign or like some of the dodgy moments for Cameron and Miliband in the last election that's when we might just get a few good answers but that's going to be half an hour in the whole campaign it's, it's interesting isn't it Hamish this debate about TV debates seems to have sort of subsided everyone's just accepted to his mate's not going to do it there's no great pressure to do it but Jenny's right, that sort of question time format, just to resume on her own on a platform on BBC One for half the calls an hour, you only need one member of the public to just say, will you just answer the bloody question? And that could 
could cause far more damage than any number of journalist questions without wanting to do all of us out of jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think that, that it has become the norm in campaigns that the public tend to try and take a lot from TV debates, TV discussions, um, and the the leaders' debates that there have been have been watched by millions and millions of people. They may start watching it, they 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 may drift off halfway through. But there is a there is a there is a big uh, interest in that, and I think it's a shame from that point of view that, that leaders' debates, if they take place, will take place without Theresa May. I mean, oddly enough, in Scotland we we have the reverse situation where all the leaders were clamouring to get on uh, to TV debates, and we're going to have TV debates in Scotland with the leaders of the parties in Scotland because they all want to do it and they're all pretty experienced. They all think they're good at it. Um, so in some ways the, the, the Scottish electorate may end up being more informed or be better informed than the population of the UK as a whole. Because you'll get Ruth Davidson being lively. We'll get Ruth Davidson being lively. We'll get Nicola Surgeon uh, being pretty firm and strong and then you've got Kezia Dugdale and Patrick Harvey and then, and then, and then and others as well. Um, they're all pretty good. They're all, they've, all, they've all got experience. I mean, you, know, you mentioned Ruth Davidson. She she took, you know, one of the uh, the big roles in the final Remain debate at Wembley, um, up against Boris Johnson, and by all accounts, she 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 did very well. So if she's done that kind of thing, I don't think she's going to be too phased by um, a TV camera and going up against Nicola Sturgeon. Let's move on though, uh, because um, we will come back. We'll come back to Scotland uh, later in the program. But um, Anthony, let's talk about polls and pollsters. Uh, at this stage, before the 2015 general election, we all seemed to think that Ed Miliband was on course uh, to become Prime Minister. Obviously, it didn't happen. There was a big inquiry into why pollsters had, had got it wrong. Um, where are we now on pollsters and changing? Because lots of them changed in different ways, changed their methodology and that sort of thing. Can we, can we now trust the polls? We should... Well, even as a pollster, I would advise some caution. Um, obviously, what percentage of caution? <laughs> I don't like to be precise anymore. Yeah, margin, there's a, there's a wide degree of margin of error in that, I think. Everyone thinks we know what went wrong. Um, the sort of people who pick up the phone and agree to take part in a survey or join an online panel are not your average person. They're a bit too bit odd, a bit too interested in politics, a bit too ready to share, your, share their opinions. And we've done, everyone's done different methods to try and put that right. So we put quotas on how interested you are in politics. We wait on how interested you are in politics. We cut down on the number of graduates you get in surveys because everyone was too educated. We, lots of companies are sort of modelling turnout, not based on how people, how likely people say they are to vote, but based on their demographics. At every election in the past, young people don't really vote and more working, working class people vote at a lower rate than middle class people. So instead of trusting what people say, you say, right, you're young, you're working class, you're less likely to vote than that retired middle class person. But, yeah, and to me, all these changes make sense, and all these change, changes should, in theory, solve the problem. But realistically, we're not going to know until June the 9th. So, but but presumably, what we can be more sure of is whereas at the EU referendum, the polls were basically saying it was neck and neck, margin of error meant that either side could or have been ahead at any particular point. There's no doubt the Tories are ahead of Labour at the moment. I'm I'm a pollster. We may have got some things slightly wrong in the recent past. You are not going to drag the words from my lips of we are certain. I'm not <laughs> saying it. Um, um, but 
yeah, the Conservatives have got a lead of about 20 points. The polls have been wrong in the past, but even when they've been really, really, really wrong, they've been wrong by about six or seven points. The polls have never, ever been wrong by 24 points. Jenny, what do you think when you see these polls giving, you know, the Tories and some of them, they've got double the percentage share of the vote of the Labour Party? Does that, is this is another reason why you're, you're sort of bored of the, we already know what's going to happen? Well, it's more than I'm actually depressed about the long-term state of British democracy because I don't think it does anybody any good. If you, uh, It makes people feel completely dispossessed, the people who don't want to vote for the Tories. As we've said before, it doesn't mean that anyone is held to account. It makes for a long-term lack of interest in politics. And it's not that I want to see the Labour Party as, as it is now, you know, suddenly warmed up and revived. It seems to me that it's clearly suffering from the same problems that social democratic parties and leftist parties have been all over the world, which is what is the point of view when there's no longer a lot of money to share out amongst the lucky people who live in societies where you're willing to take wealth from those who are doing very well and give it to those who are doing badly and because there's less money around now we, we we don't really know what a Labour Party should stand for when that isn't its answer and our Labour Party hasn't been able to come up with a convincing solution to that so the problem for for everybody in the in this election is just how do you start reviving an opposition it's not just a matter of this election I've was talking to somebody senior in the Labour Party the, the other day who was saying, although this was just before the election was called, who was saying they were very confident about the revival of Labour because they understood that Jeremy Corbyn was having such a miserable time that he was likely to resign before the end of the year. Now, I have no idea whether this was true or not, but this this is a serious person that I was talking to who isn't prone to flights of fancy. <laughs> and he was saying, well, I think that that means that we're going to get some really good young person who will come forward. There'll be a proper contest and you'll see all this resurgence of ideas and enthusiasm and Macron could step forward from uh, the entrails of the Labour Party. Now, in theory, I guess that's true. It's just I don't see that Macron well, that personality that standing always, around. Yes, why, where's I've, the person? I've said it many times before, but part of the reason why Jeremy Corbyn won in 2015 was because the alternatives were so... Absolutely. Dismal. They all deserve to lose. There's no doubt about that. So, Anthony, um, for listeners to the podcast, when they're looking at polls and uh, reading stories about them, what should they be looking for? What were the interesting bits and pieces who are the who are the groups that are shifting where where are votes votes going given the conservative yeah lead is just huge at the moment and nothing's changing the bits i'm watching are liberal democrats and ukip ukip have already been the only interesting change the moment the election was called ukip immediately collapsed totally um, and didn't do anything they didn't say anything but like that their vote halved um, um as far as you know my assumption is that that's people who, when we were talking about a theoretical election in three or four years' time, they were thinking, oh, I'm, I'm UKIP to show their support for Brexit and you know, their, their doubts about the Conservatives' and immigration and so on. But when suddenly you focused your minds on an actual election in only seven weeks' time, then they're all voting for the Conservative Party. They are now the party that supports Brexit. Um, the other one, the ones to look for in the future is the Lib Dems. Um, obviously, they're the only party that's got a properly, fully-throated yeah, Brexit is bad sort of message. Um, when it gets to the local elections, the Liberal Democrats always do better in local elections than they do in national elections. The shares of the vote in the local elections will be very different. Um, um, we've had it before in 1983 and 1987 when you had local elections a month before. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the Lib Dems you know, get something up towards the 20s in the local elections. And then 
people will go, wow, you can vote Lib Dem and it's not a wasted vote and something's going to happen and we can all go behind this party and support Remain. And it would not surprise him in the slightest if there was another sort of big boost for the Lib Dems halfway through the campaign and you know people started to go into raising questions of can the Lib Dems overtake Labour you know, serious questions like that so that's the point I'm watching is the Lib Dem score. Hamish when you're um, as a journalist looking at polls do you approach them differently because of the experience in the past do, do you think we, we the way that they're reported has changed? I think yes, but I think it's because um, we've had so many shocks in electoral terms, both here and in America and and Brexit and Trump and and even the last election and so on, that I think everybody treats polls with with, uh, more scepticism than than we did before. Um, I think there's an interesting point that Anthony's made about... um, the, the not a wasted vote and the, the impact of the local elections and then on the, on the general election. I think this is one of the reasons why we, why we are now seeing uh, a, a, a more sustained Tory surge in Scotland. That up until now, the, the people who have been on, let's say, wavering Tories who might vote Tory if, 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 they, if, they, if, if they were pushed, thought, well, it's a wasted vote. I mean, if I vote Tory, there's never a chance in hell that they're going to get in. But now, if they see that actually the Tories are up to 23, 25, 26, seven points and looking like they're winning seats no longer is it a wasted vote and I think this is the danger one of the dangers for, for Labour is that the, it, conversely in Scotland a Labour vote now looks like a wasted vote that, that Labour could be wiped out in Scotland it's not you know, beyond the realms of possibility that their one seat that they won two years ago could go and you think that you know Labour had 40 MPs in, in Scotland 10-15 years ago they, were the, they dominated every level of government in Scotland and to have them wiped out completely in Scotland is a huge political change. And to have the Tories coming back to a level that we haven't seen since 1992, so 25 years since the Tories are up at that level in Scotland, again is, is, is a massive change. So I think we're seeing, we're seeing really big changes, some of which are reflected in the polls and some of which I say is, is, is reflected in, in the attitude that people have to the vote. Is it something which has been sort of bubbling away in the background for a long time and obviously the tipping point goes from you know we only really notice when people go from second to first place but actually this is this is this has been taking place over a large time or is this a relatively recent phenomenon is it a ruth davidson thing or is it a brexit thing i i think that what has changed is the attitude that people have to their vote i remember being out on the doorstep with labor candidates 2010 and, and, and 2005 and you'd find people who said oh no I'm voting Labour because my father voted Labour, my grandfather voted Labour and they were never going to change but something shifted and, and the thing that shifted in Scotland was the independence referendum and once those Labour voters had decided that they could vote independence suddenly the SNP became a viable proposition for them and they and they ditched that heritage, that Labour heritage that had been there for generations and they voted SNP and once that's broken and once those traditional loyalties had, had started being broken Broken down, then everything was was up in the air. So I think it's it, again back to that 2010 election. No, no seat changed hands in Scotland in 2010, not one. But there was a big, big change under the surface where all those Labour majorities, which had been big, got really concertina down to quite small majorities for the SNP. So then it came to the 2015 election and the SNP were then able to knock them out on... It was one more heave and, and That's right. over they went. And uh, Anthony, we've seen uh, a poll this week for Wales, which is also extraordinary, puts them on... F- the Tories on 40% in Wales, 10 points ahead of Labour... This is a YouGov uh, poll, but no precedent for the Tories being that 
uh, high or that far ahead. And it suggests that the Tories could win more seats than any other party in uh, Wales, which haven't been seen for Since 100 years or something. 1859. 1859. <laughs> um, is this something that you've been picking up for some time or is, it, is there a Theresa May factor which is sort of heaving people over that line Wales there there is a longer term trend in Wales it was you know during the Conservative Party's long years in opposition when everyone was saying oh they're dead in they're dead in Scotland and Wales they were dead in Scotland at that moment but Wales they were slowly creeping back in Wales you know part of it is demographic changes and the Welsh population is getting much older um, um, and you know older people tend to vote Tory. Um, uh, you've also got the influence of mining retreating. Um, um, that's, yeah, the influence of mines lasts down the generations even after the mines have gone, but eventually it fades and old pit villages become commuter villages for Cardiff and so on. Um, um, but most of the, yeah, most of the shift seats would actually change hand is, is North East Wales. On those figures, North East Wales, all around Wrexham, Allen, Deeside, um, and that's currently all Labour. That would all go Tory. Labour would be pushed right back to just the Welsh valleys and part of Swansea. Um, um, and a lot of that was, is UKIP almost a gateway drug? <laughs> People who used to vote Labour, who happily went off and voted UKIP because they felt about Europe and they felt about immigration and they felt strongly about all these things, but they weren't going to vote Tory because they're Labour people. They were happy to go and vote UKIP. Now UKIP in decline, they've broken that habit of voting Labour like they did in Scotland and they've moved on to the Conservatives. And 
Party of Scotland, but now it looks we may have the Conservatives taking over from Labour as the chief opposition in Scotland. And I think it may be about the only interesting and fulfilling part of the whole election campaign is to watch what happens in Scotland. You're not only going to have the best debates, you're going to have the most interesting results. Hamish, in Scotland, what's what's a sort of good night, bad night for Nicola Sturgeon, Ruth Davidson? Um, it, it's tricky for Nicola Sturgeon because they did so well two years ago. I mean, to, to Scotland has 59 seats and, and the SNP won 56. I mean, that's the equivalent of, of, of winning sort of 540-odd seats in, in, in Westwood. It, is, it was huge as, as a high watermark. I've never seen anything like it. None of us will. So from that point, it was always going to be down. It, the, the, there's no way they can win more than 56. Well, they can't win 59, but that's, 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 that's not going to happen. So it is going to be down. So I think as far as Nicola Sturgeon is concerned, it's about managing expectations of some decline. Now, they will be hoping that they don't lose more than a handful. If they were in the high 40s, I think they'd see that as, as, as terrific and they would try and paint it as such. If they lose more than 10, I think they'll start to get worried and it will appear as if momentum has really gone against them. For the Conservatives, um, I mean, the, some of the polls are suggesting that they may get 12 seats, may get 10 seats. I think that's that's probably pushing it because I think the leap they have to make in a lot of constituencies is just too big. Even if you get a big swing, 15, 17%, they have to come up from third to first and, and, and that's, that's, that's a really too big a jump. If they could pick up four, five seats, I think that they would see that as a, as a, as a really good starting point to then push on in, in a few years' time. I remember back in 1992, they got 11 seats in Scotland. Then they got wiped out in 1997 and every election since then they've just had one seat. One sole Conservative seat in Scotland. So to get four or five and to start putting those blue bits on the map will show that the Conservatives are back. Now one of the things, because people keep saying it's too much of a leap for the Tories on that fund or you know for the Labour Party, the thing that really struck me in the 2015 election and in the West Country is the place that is where I'm from and where I've reported on for the 2010 election. It's the place that I know best. And the but lots of Lib Dem seats down there where you just thought their majorities were insurmountable. David Laws in Yeovil, for example, had a majority of 13,000. There was no way the Tories were going to win that. And they won it with a majority of 5,000. So, Anthony, if we if we reached a point in politics now where the sort of incumbency factor or the lifelong loyalty to party has just been so shredded that people are so volatile that what has happened before isn't the same indicator that it was party loyalty and those uh, i've always voted labor my parents always voted labor that sort of mindset yes i think is starting to break down um, um and yeah, as hamish had said the referendums I mean, it played a big part in that it really knocked people off in scotland i think it's upset party loyalties over brexit as well the incumbency, I don't think it's something. As party loyalty goes down, it almost works in the opposite direction. Suddenly, that individual person, that MP, whether he's fixed the potholes in your street, whether he's helped you with that school problem thing, suddenly becomes more important if you have less party loyalty. Um, um, it was, yeah, in the case of Lib Dems, it was just they were facing such a tidal wave that the personal vote was wiped out. The swing was too big, because I remember speaking to Lib Dems and it was sort of saying anything under 30 MPs would be bad, and they thought they were, they were dug in and they'd been there for a long time and they were just... Uh, 
swept, as you say, completely swept aside by this um, tidal wave. Uh, Hamish, Lib Dems in Scotland, have they got any prospects? They do. I mean, oddly enough, I mean, there is a there is quite a strong Lib Dem tradition in Scotland. They, you know, they have certain areas of the country, the Northern Isles, the Highlands, used to be very strong in, um, and some parts of the borders. Now, again, last time they 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 got knocked completely aside apart from just keeping on with the northern isles but they're very good at targeting specific areas and rather than than having a big lib dem campaign for the whole country into areas with you know like glasgow where they're not going to make any headway they will focus on on certain key seats now one of them edinburgh west they think they have a big chance in there the the incumbent smp mp had to resign the smp whip because of of uh, financial troubles um and she isn't standing and there's been a problem there so the the there's a tradition voting at Lib Dem in Edinburgh West. They think they can take that one. Is that um, Ming Campbell's old seat? No, no. Uh, Ming Campbell's old seat is North East Fife. No, Edinburgh West is um, Michelle Thompson. Um, so there were seats like that where you know they, they will be looking to, to come back. East Dunbartonshire, where Joe Swinson used to be the yep. M- MP. She's standing again against John Nicholson, who, who took the seat two years ago. She thinks she's in with a chance. She has a local, a really good, strong local base. So although their, their percentage of the vote may not go up hugely, if they can target it in places like Edinburgh West, places like East Dunbartonshire, they could end up with three seats. And if they end up with three, say, and, and, and Labour end up with none, that's a massive reversal. How, how much of a problem is it for you, Anthony, to try to capture the, something like the Lib Dems in polls? Because the headline figures of them on going from 8% to 10% doesn't really tell us anything about... Yeah, um, it's fine trying to catch the headline figures, but what people are interested in is how many seats they get. And yeah, national polls aren't much good at all for that Lib Dems because it's all about tactical votes it's all about strong local campaigns it's all about you know getting people to come and vote for that particular person because they think it'll be a good MP and once that's evened out amongst 600 seats you can't detect it so if they're I don't know if Lord Ashcroft is going to turn out and do lots of individual polls and constituencies <laughs> whether he's had his fingers burnt they weren't, um, oh, they weren't but, terribly accurate last time <laughs> it didn't necessarily it may be more noise than light anyway but yeah, without individual seat polls without any polls specifically focusing on Lib Dem targets no it would be very hard to judge and the only people who really know what's going on at the parties and they're not going to tell us well they will tell us but we shouldn't trust them um, um, the local elections <laughs> might again they might help if we see the Lib Dems doing particularly well in individual seats in the locals then that might be a sign they're going to do well a month later well it's fascinating stuff and despite what Jenny says uh, I'm I'm excited Anthony's excited Hamish you're yes. excited so uh, Jenny the minority um, as ever um, do subscribe to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box and you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device so it arrives automatically when we issue uh, new episodes and I will tease you by telling you you should subscribe because we've got a big series dropping this weekend which you are not going to want to miss but for now from uh, Jenny Russell Anthony Wells Hamish McDonnell and me Matt Chorley it's goodbye Thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk 